Hello. Welcome to episode number 61 of CXO Talk. I am Michael Krigsman, and as always, I am here with my truly incredible, despite the fact that we like to insult him and taunt him, and tor <laughs> especially torment him, especially since I just learned that in his family, he ranks below the cat. The truth has to come out. That's Vala true. Afshar. Vala. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much. I love cat. I love cats and dogs. Thank you. Loves cats and dogs. And uh, Vala, we're here with a tremendous guest today. What, a, what an honor and a privilege for us to have uh, one of the one of the most extraordinary CIOs on CXO Talk we've had today. Yes, we're here with Jeanette Horan, who is the vice president and CIO of IBM. Hi, Jeanette. How are you? <laughs> Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you guys doing today? Great. Thank doing you great. so much for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. And I see from the background you are in the middle of New York City. I am indeed. I'm at the IBM office at 590 Madison Avenue today. Oh, cool. Well, Jeanette, let's jump right in and tell us uh, very briefly about your professional background and then tell us about your role at IBM. What does the CIO of IBM do? Yeah, so, so by training, I'm a mathematician and a software engineer and that certainly is where I began my, my early career um, working in, in systems programming, operating systems and compilers and, and such like. And uh, as I moved further up into to management and started to learn more about sort of business strategy and the intersection of IT and business, I really became interested in how technology could be applied to improve the way that, that people work. And that was actually what brought me um, in the mid-90s um, when I was working at Digital Equipment up there uh, near Boston um, to the Alta Vista uh, search engine in those very early days of the internet. And from there to Lotus, where, of course, the whole kind of programming paradigm around Lotus Notes and collaboration really came to the fore. And, um, and from there, obviously, kind of, you know, into IBM. And uh, I sometimes tell people I'm a CIO by accident um, because I spent most of my career more on the product side of the business. And uh, in 2006, I was given an opportunity to come work for the then CIO in what I at the time thought would be my kind of 18 months to two years tour through corporate um, that a lot of you know IBM execs do and uh, and then move back into a business unit but I, I found I got hooked and uh, got the opportunity to become the CIO three years ago now so and being the CIO at IBM is an, an interesting role because obviously you know we ourselves are a very large IT company and uh, sometimes I tell people I have 400,000 people who think they know how to do my job better than I do, and probably many of them do. <laughs> um, uh, so I have a lot of advisors. Um, but I really look at my role in, in three areas. Um, one area is really obviously to enable all of those 400,000 people and the various subcontractors who work with us to uh, be able to work effectively. So all of the tools that they use to do their jobs day in and day out. I obviously have to provision and support them and, and make sure they have access to the information and, and the tools that they need. Um, the second area is around um, integration with the business. Um, I think uh, if you look at what's been happening with IBM over the last several years, our business mix has shifted tremendously. 
Mm. And, um, and, and so sort of finding out, figuring out what the business really needs and how we can support the business is probably really the, the second thing and in some ways I think probably the most critical thing that I do. Um, and that really usually takes the form of kind of you know, new projects. You know, what are the new projects we're deploying to enable the business uh, to work in different ways? And then the third area is an area that I say if I wasn't at a company like IBM, the business probably wouldn't care about um, because it's what you think of as the core IT work that we do um, around you know, kind of what actually happens in the data center um, and all of the technologies that we deploy there uh, kind of is, is the third area of what my role entails. Great. Last week, Jeanette, we had Oliver Bussman, the CIO of UBS, former CIO at SAP, and Oliver manages an 8,000-person IT organization. Um, I was wondering the size of your IT organization at IBM as, as the first question. And then a follow-up to that, you know, I suspect the number is in the thousands. And you often talk about the importance of collaboration. And I wanted to learn a little bit about, um, you know, your approach in terms of you know, truly building collaboration, not only in a 400,000 employee ecosystem, but even within your, your IT organization. Yeah, so my IT organization is, is sort of an interesting one because I outsource to IBM's own strategic outsourcing business. So both our data center operations and also our application maintenance and development is, is outsourced to IBM's global um, so if you look at it from the perspective of a traditional retained organization, I have about 5,000 people in my organization. Um, but if I add the other two service providers together, there's probably about another 12,000 uh, people in those organizations as well. Um, and because we are all, all IBMers, um, even though I, I operate as a customer of those organizations, you know, we do tend to collaborate fairly closely, um, especially when it comes to deployment of new technologies and you know, how are we really going to support the business in the best way? And collaboration is a really interesting um, issue and challenge, uh, I think, for all of us these days. We operate in 170 different countries. Um, and today, I think the norm is that project teams are going to be in more than one location. Um, I think it's very rare that everybody all comes to the same office and works together. And so we've had to figure out what are the different tools that people can use to work most effectively. And I mean, obviously, you can start with things like, things like email. Um, but I think one of the, one of the most important tools that we have in the business today actually is instant messaging. And um, it sounds strange to say, but I get more calls if the same time servers go down than probably anything else, because it becomes sort of the fabric of how do people connect and. And more so than just the actual instant message itself, I think, is the presence awareness of am I online and available to talk. Uh, people might choose to, to chat over an instant message or they might choose to pick up the phone, but they at least know they can reach out and, and touch someone. Um, but more recently, we've been moving much more towards um, a, an internal social platform that's obviously built on, on an IBM product called IBM Connections. Uh, which has you know wikis and, and blogs and forums and communities that allow people to share files or hold discussions or, or or really to be able to collaborate across boundaries because I think one of the biggest challenges that you have when you're a global organization the one thing that none of us can solve is time zones and so if you've got a project that's work where people are working you know maybe across 12 different time zones 
you know, they're never all going to be awake at the same time, so you need a way to be able to store the information and hand it off and make sure that people can, can work more effectively. Um, and so we've been using that platform and really encouraging people to think about how do they, they share what they're doing. Um, you know, obviously, uh, we've published a lot about this on, on Twitter and you're encouraging questions from uh, your audience on a, a Twitter stream. We're really trying to encourage people to do the same thing inside of IBM to be able to share what they're working on, um, even to be able to reach out and say, hey, here's an issue I'm working. Has anybody seen this before? And what we're finding is that the community is really rallying around that as a way to be able to make what is a very large company feel like a much smaller company uh, for people to work in. That's You've great. been talking about uh, collaboration, and we've had some discussion so far about technology. So my question is, what is the, the real job of a CIO? Is it about the technology? Or is it about the people relationships or, or non-technology factors? So how would you characterize it? So I think the job of a CIO has been and always will be about the intersection of business and technology. Um, clearly, the, you know, we don't do IT for IT's sake. We do it to help a, a business colleague in some way, shape, or form, whether it's dealing with a problem or creating some new opportunity. That's really what's about. It's about how can we apply technology to those business opportunities. And so I think the CIO has to understand what the business of the firm is and understand how you can actually bring some of the technologies to bear. And I think that's why we're seeing, actually in, in a lot of different cases today, the CIOs have maybe spent some time in a line of business, just as I'm, I myself have. And when I came into the CIO organization, I certainly knew our software group inside and out, but I've learned far more about the IBM company from this role than I ever would have done in a software group only role because you're very deep as opposed to very broad. Um, but getting, gaining that broader understanding I, I think is one of the things that's really important. And I think being able to sort of demonstrate and play back to the business that you do actually understand what they're trying to do. Um, so that you know, when you get the inevitable challenges of the no, no, you don't understand, we're different. <laughs> you can say, actually, yes, I do understand, and I do understand where you need to be different for a very good reason because your business model is different, versus where you know a, a standard process is actually kind of the best thing for the IBM company. I think being able to have those discussions is really critically important. I I read that um, your team supports. Hopefully, I'm not mistaken. Nearly 4,500 business applications at IBM, and so I'm wondering how much of your day and your team's uh, uh, work is, you know, meeting your internal stakeholders' needs or external customers. In 4,500 apps, is is pretty incredible. Well, I'm the first thing I'm actually proud to say is that as of uh, the end of last year, we actually got that down just under 3,000. Just under 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now it sounds easy. That's <laughs> a conscious part of the strategy because part of the business strategy was to get to more global common process. And right. if you want global processes, you need to have global applications. And so we have been in the process of moving everybody onto strategic apps and sunsetting all of kind of more of the regional apps. But I would say that, you know, certainly for my retained organization, you know, 80% of what they do 
is working with the business to understand the business requirements and where the business is going and you know either you know what modifications do we need to make to existing apps where do we need to completely re-engineer and introduce a new application um, you know or, or how are we going to support where the business is going within that application portfolio we have a comment from Twitter this is not so much as a, as a question as an accusation from, <laughs> from my friend Alan Lepofsky, who's an analyst with uh, Constellation. And so Alan says, okay, we're talking about collaboration and technology, and he says, nice dance around the word culture. So what about the role of culture and the intersection with technology? Any thoughts about, and business transformation, any thoughts about that? You know, I think that's really an interesting question, and I do know Alan, so it's nice to uh, talk to him <laughs> here today. But, um, you know, culture in a lot of ways is the make or break of any transformation program. Um, you know, there are some things that you're going to do in a business which truly are, are not optional, and I use examples of, for example, you know, if you're going to roll out and upgrade your general ledger, everybody has to use that same version of the general ledger, and it's not optional. But in many, many other applications and spaces, especially where you're talking about more individual productivity or team productivity, I mean, it, it truly is optional um, for people to be able to adopt or, or not adopt the, the different tools. And obviously as well, you know, being an IT company, people always have lots of ways to kind of invent their own solutions if they don't want the one that, that we're rolling out. Um, and so, so I think culture is really critically important. And what I'm seeing... Um, today, certainly around, and I'm going to I'm going to change the term collaboration to one more of engagement. Um, what we're seeing is a real leadership from the top at IBM. Um, as an example, when Ginny Rometty became the CEO, um, she decided that she wanted to engage with all employees using um, a video blog format, where um, she will um, post either a, a replay of a video blog or even maybe a live video broadcast and encourage employees to, to comment or ask questions and, and sort of you know, really drive engagement in that way. And so we're seeing that now obviously kind of sort of flow down, right? You know, this becomes successful and people like it, and so then the next level of senior vice presidents are following suit and doing the same kind of thing. And I do think that that leadership from the top is, is one element of, of how you get broader adoption of some of these, uh, these technologies. Um, but there's also the grassroots. Um, today, it, it used to be the vision of an IBMer was somebody who came to IBM from college and stayed here until they retired. <laughs> and today, that is just not the case. If you look at how our business has shifted over the last few years with acquisitions and divestitures and the growth in some of our growth markets, today about half of the IBM population has less than five years with the company. And so they come into the company with expectations and experiences either from college or from other employers and they they come with their own ways of working and their own ways of collaborating with other people and so we see a lot of from the ground up communities building of people with common interests um, you know they might be a community of practice like business consultants or they might be um, a project team, people who are trying to work across a, a global project team, kind of just forming their own communities and coming together. And I think today within the Connections platform, I think we have about 86,000 communities at this point in time, and that's much more, as I say, of the 
the bottoms up as opposed to the tops down, um, but a little bit of both. What are some of the great opportunities where IT can serve IBM business, in your opinion? You talked about you know, the, 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 the diversity of talent, young talent coming into the business. Obviously, you know, they're, they're, they're mobile, they're social, they're, they're connected. It's, you know, soon it's going to be bring your own wearable, you know, with their glasses and watches and sensors. So how, how, do, you, how do you feel there's the greatest opportunity for IT to serve the business? Well, you know, we have the, the very formal means that I would say, which is the working with either the lines of business or with our enterprise process owners to make sure that we're delivering the capability that's needed. But um, let me just talk to you about actually one project that I'm actually really excited about this year that we're rolling out. And um, we call it iFund IT. And this is a Kickstarter model um, where one of the business challenges that I wanted to have my team solve is to help the business to truly embrace mo mobility. And the big question, you know, once you've got beyond the sort of basics of providing people mail, calendar, and contacts on a mobile device, you want to move into what are the real uh, business applications that people would find useful. Now, I could sit here and imagine and dream up what they might find useful, but instead we decided let's go out and ask the community. So in a Kickstarter model, um, what I did was I set aside a budget and I said the only rule for this year's Kickstarter model is that it needs to be mobile app development. Huh. And so we, I, I took a budget and I went out and I asked for volunteers to be investors and then I gave them each a chip for $2,000. So I said okay. And then we w went out with a call for projects and within the first three weeks we had over a thousand project submissions. Wow. And so we're now, and, and so the funders with their $2,000, they can choose to spend $10 on a project or all $2,000 on one project, but they basically are selecting how to invest the money. And we're in that process right now of sort of going through that sort of matching, and um, several projects have already received their full funding. And my goal is, is to, you know, kind of have mobile apps that the business is asking for and that they want. We have a mobile app store. Um, so we'll put the apps into the app store and then we'll let people rate them and we'll see how many people download them and see kind of how good the ideas were. Um, but it's really a way to allow us to be, I, I want to say sort of the IT organization that says yes instead of the IT organization that says, you know, no, we can't do that or come back in six months' time, you know, all the things that we traditionally are charged with as, you know, the criticisms of traditional IT organizations. That's pretty extraordinary, actually, uh, to think of yourself as trying to be the yes CIO as opposed to the no CIO. And we know that the no CIO leads to the state of IT where nobody likes IT. <laughs> but it's hard. But, but how do you balance? But being the yes CIO seems to me that on the one hand, the business, the company says to IT in general, uh, you need to save money, okay? We need to reduce our costs, figure out how to reduce our infrastructure costs, and so forth. And at the same time, being the yes CIO means increasing innovation. So, and I think many CIOs face this, this almost mutually exclusive set of requests. Cut your costs, innovate, and support the business. How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, I mean, I mean that definitely is the dilemma for every CIO, right? And um, you know, I try to sort of look at it from the perspective of where are we spending money today, and what are the things that we spend money on, 
and where are there opportunities to optimize? Um, and certainly, you know, there are cases where, you know, we're going to take advantage of the inherent, you know, price performance curves of technology, right? You know, as they come down, you know, things are, you know, things get a little cheaper um, to be able to run, whether that's in our data center or whether it's in things like, you know, kind of voice contracts with our cell phone providers. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to just sort of walk down that natural curve. Um, but we definitely are always looking for how we can get to more efficiency in the way that we operate the business because, you know, the goal is to get more money into the, into the new things, the things that add value to the business. So, so running in steady state is the first area that we're constantly looking to optimize. And we have actually a pretty good partnership. One of the great things actually about being the CIO in IBM is, you know, I have access to, you know, a truly world-class research organization. Mm -hmm. And um, if I have a, a challenge of something that I want to solve, you know, then I can, you know, look to, to research for a, um, for a partnership, um, you know, kind of, and how can we, you know, work on some of those efficiency things um, that can allow us to innovate to provide more value. Um, but it's interesting, the way I sort of see us moving now, I mean, in, in today's world, is really how can we provide maybe more of a set of, of services um, to the business as opposed to, you know, just kind of, you know, we run IT and everything's behind the curtain, mm. um, that they can really choose of kind of, you know, how can they run the business. And we certainly, I mean, obviously in today's world, you know, we're looking at more, you know, kind of software as a service plays, um, you know, and then we become sort of much more of the broker of those services within my organization uh, that allows us to provide, you know, kind of some, some innovation along those lines. So it's probably a bit of a long answer, sorry. <laughs> So I mean, I see you active on Twitter, you know, public social networks, and uh, you know, you mentioned how internally you, you, know, you, you and your team are leveraging social platforms to connect and engage. How have you had to work with the business to help them better relate to IT? I mean, and, and you know, you're talking about a 17,000 IT organization, so. So do you, do you, are they town hall meetings, internal blogs, video uh, uh, summaries of initiatives? Um, how do you, uh, you know, bring the business closer to IT and vice versa? Yeah, so, so we do a number of things. I mean, obviously, this, I'm going to say this, like, the broad communication things that, yes, I mean, you know, I'll do a video blog um, or even a, you know, kind of a written blog on different topics to talk about what we're working on. And I actually encourage, I mean, a lot of my sort of individual project leaders will do the same thing. And we certainly um, share in our own internal social networks, you know, like if there's something that's either going to go live or something that's just gone live, you know, we definitely use that as a mechanism um, for broad sharing of information. Um, but I do think that there are times as well where certainly when you're making change in a big organization, you have to have the human touch. And um, the benefit of stakeholder management becomes really important. And the stakeholder management is really much more than just, you know, sort of the training of there's a new version of something that's going live and let me bring a training class to you. I think it really starts at the beginning with a discussion with the key stakeholders around what are we trying to do here, right? What's, what are we trying to change and why? Are we trying to solve a problem? Are we trying to create a new opportunity? Um, but let's all make sure that we're clear on what our purpose is here together. And then that gives us a framework on which to move forward. And one of the things that we've been doing is trying to engage much more with um, some of the stakeholder groups and even the design um, of, a, of a new application, say, um, using kind of much more formal design methods. And in fact, 
where I am today, I'm actually on the floor here in, um, in New York City in our uh, joint uh, marketing and communications and IT design lab, uh, where the teams come together here um, to work in very collaborative small teams on very fast iterations um, to do things together um, that allows us to bring much more of that formal design thinking, which I think allows us to then sort of bring the business along with us. So in other words, it's not something that we're doing to them, but it's something that we're doing with them and for them uh, that I think really makes a difference. We have a question from Twitter from Zachary Jeans who asks about shadow IT and he asks whether you see shadow IT as a source of innovative ideas or to use his term as an enemy or I would say you know a problem or a challenge or how do, how do you view shadow IT? So, I mean, obviously, I mean, in some ways, you know, I mean, like, we're an IT company. So, you know, if I was to tell you we didn't have any shadow IT, I would be lying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things that we've done is um, to try to provide people with what I consider to be, I call it a safe playground um, to play in. Mm -hmm. So, as well as our, you know, kind of production data centers that we have, I maintain an innovation lab. Um, which does not is not subject to the same you know service level agreements and you know production SLAs etc that, that the production labs are subject to, um, and I provide within that what we call our technology adoption program, and even though it started before the term platform as a service was a popular term, um, you could think of it as being exactly that. So I provide an environment that had you know kind of database and web sphere and you know sort of various of the tooling for people to be able to create applications. Um, and let them do that. And you know, we have probably about you know, probably about 25% of the IBM population is is active on TAP. Um, you know, either you know, creating uh, business, you know, short-term business applications, um, or downloading and using those business applications. And it's very much a um, what I call a graduate or die model. Um, in that, if the app becomes successful and becomes adopted across the business, then we figure out how to move it into production. Um, but you know, if it was sort of an interesting idea, or, or even sometimes there are requirements for an app that just lives for a short period of time for a particular project or program, for example, you know, then that's an ideal environment for it um, because then when the need is gone, you know, we can you know redeploy the assets um, that were being used. And I think it's sometimes these kinds of programs where you tell people it's actually we we don't want to stifle innovation; we actually want to encourage innovation. Um, and by providing people a mechanism and a form to, forum to do that, it's uh, it's kind of I mean it's still it's not exactly shadow IT, but it, it's it is more in the open. Um, but it's it, but it's uh, alongside of the official production portfolio. I uh, recently attended an IDC conference here in Boston, and there was a marketing track that talked about digital transformation and impact in marketing, and they showed a graph, and this was a survey of you know hundreds of CMOs and marketing experts um, talking about uh, shift in program spend where in 2009 digital spend uh, was roughly 10% of marketing program spend and their IDC is projecting that in a year or two 50% of total marketing program spend will be digital marketing. So I'm, I'm curious and, and today you're actually in the you know IT marketing design center in New York City um, is there more demand uh, on on your organization from marketing today than, than before? And you know, uh, you know, how, what are some of the projects and initiatives that um, that you see advice to other CIOs in terms of making sure marketing organizations 
are, are successful. Yeah, we've seen a huge change in our relationship with marketing, I'm going to say over the last two to three years. Mm -hmm. um, where I mean, if, if I go back five years, I mean, certainly the marketing organization probably have very little demand on IT. I mean, obviously, you know, we kept the corporate website for them and provided yeah. them a way to publish content. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, some degree of um, sort of online engagement with, uh, with our clients, um, whether it was in sort of private stores or certainly if you think about it in the technical support category, um, wow. we had online relationships with, with many of our clients. Um, but, but today, you know, I, I agree with the statement, you know, what we're seeing from marketing is that, you know, they want sort of more and more to be through a digital medium and so we've been investing with them over the last couple of years in a lot of what I would consider to be the infrastructure elements of that um, with respect to making sure that, for example, we've actually been deploying uh, Unica. Actually, even before IBM bought Unica, we started to deploy uh, the Unica platform um, to be able to do much more automation in the marketing processes. Um, and now we're sort of working with them on making sure that we have robust information about our clients. Um, if you think about it, IBM's a B2B company, you know, kind of primarily, um, and so our traditional view in IT of a customer master would be, you know, company X or company Y. Um, but today, what we're finding is that we want to know much more about the individual. So if an individual is coming um, to engage with us digitally, do we know are they a CIO or are they a CMO or are they a database administrator? Kind of what is their role? And what's the kind of information that they're most likely to want to see? And I think this sort of you know kind of alignment of sort of figuring out how do we how do we build for them the information platform that then allows the marketing teams uh, to leverage that information in the most productive and appropriate way is really where I see where I see the trends heading. And I I think that this sort of um, difference between sort of B two C versus B two B. You know, a few years ago, I would have said it was very stark, right? You know, the, the way that people engaged with with their clients, but I'm seeing them the merging now, and that people want to be dealt with as an individual, as opposed to just a person in a company. And I want you to know me, and I think you, I want you to know what you know what white papers I've looked at before, and not just that my company has downloaded those white papers. So, absolutely, I I absolutely agree. Uh, that level of contextual intelligence that allows digital marketeers to uh, really segment to one <laughs> you <laughs> as the as the consumer and uh, uh, certainly my own budget when I look at just the last few years compared to next fiscal year how much of that program spend is going towards social listening tools uh, customer relationship management that touches the sales services marketing, marketing automation, um, lots of studies that point to uh, the number of touch points during the buying journey in B2B, you know, over a dozen meaningful touch points before you can, you know, earn the business. And, and uh, you know, all of that insight is critically important to marketeers. Do you believe that, you know, marketing in the future, you, you, you will have to have a technical background uh, uh, to, uh, to be able to find employment in marketing. It seems like it's more of a technology and science than, than art. Um, well, 
I think you'd better have a good buddy who's got a technical background <laughs> if you can't handle it yourself. That's right. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, marketing has, I think, sort of long, long been an art, but certainly in digital marketing, it's a science as well. I mean, you think about sort of the role of the data scientist in the digital marketing context. I mean, it's uh, really, I can say, how do you get value out of, out of that data? Um, it's really the important thing because it really is all about improving the touch point that you have with the client, right? You know, it's like you want to make things more more meaningful to that person sure. uh, as opposed to a sort of, as you say, kind of the the old notion of a website which was just a broad push of information right. to anybody who came. If I had the budget, I would just buy Watson. But, uh, <laughs> so, so let's, yes, let's, let's actually talk for a moment about Watson. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way that IT and IBM are using analytics, and how are you are you using Watson internally? So what's going on with Watson from from your IT perspective? Yeah, let's talk about Watson first, and then we can talk about uh, analytics analytics more more broadly. Um, but yeah, I mean Watson obviously, I mean it's just a fantastic technology, and it certainly has come a long way from three years ago now with you know the original Jeopardy challenge and. When you look at some of the problems that Watson is helping to solve in, you know, for example, in you know, some of the healthcare field or the financial services field, you can certainly see the power of Watson as being a tool to really help people sift through you know, kind of vast quantities of information um, that you know, any one individual just can't consume all the data that's coming at them or the information that's coming at them at any one point in time. And I think the notion for Watson to be able to be trained on the kinds of questions that are important and how do you actually navigate through that information is, is really the powerful thing. So we're actually looking at a couple of different um, different use cases internally. One of them obviously is in both the internal and the customer facing help desk um, solution uh, solutions here. You know, for our technical support professionals, you know, I mean, uh, you know, currently the the sort of state of the art is, you know, kind of if they're on the phone, being able to use Watson to help them, you know, either ask the next best question or be able to say, have you tried this or have you tried that? Um, but ultimately, I think the goal with that would be to enable the customers to become self-service using Watson technologies um, to guide them through a diagnosis, um, which would be really interesting. The other area is in support of our, our go-to-market professionals. Um, you know, we have a very broad portfolio of offerings to the marketplace and new things coming every week it seems and I sometimes sort of feel sorry for the salespeople who just must feel like they're absolutely deluged with information um, that's coming at them from all of the different brands and all of the different product teams and I think being able to sort of categorize and catalog all of that information in a way that if they want to know you know do we have any clients in the healthcare industry that have used this that product or that product Right. You know, I think can become a very helpful tool um, for our sales professionals, and so we're currently in process of teaching Watson how to answer those kinds of questions, um, so that we can uh, so that we can ho hopefully deploy um, kind of Watson uh, for that purpose. Um, so I definitely do see applicability for it. But if I talk more broadly about analytics, um, you know. As you're probably all aware, you know we've had um, a few years ago sort of you know, kind of launched the notion around a smarter planet, and uh, we've now been thinking internally about the notion about a smarter enterprise, right? So, you know, how do we enable uh, different units within the IBM company to make use of the vast amounts of information that we have at our disposal? And uh, we have invested within my organization in a, a I'll call it sort of an internal um, software as a service platform 
that actually has the Cognos and SPSS technologies in it uh, that allows the business to be able to um, you know, write reports using Cognos or to be able to do much more meaningful analytics and predictive analytics using SPSS um, from all of the information that's in all of our information warehouses across IBM. And this has become an amazingly successful project because it's actually opened up information to the business that they kind of never knew we really had or very few people knew we had. And it's made it much more accessible for people. And so we have a lot of projects going obviously with our finance organization, but with our supply chain organization, our HR organization, um, you know, where they can actually get access to this information. Mm. And my team's role is not only to support that infrastructure, um, but also to provide a... Uh, getting started help, if you will. I, I call it the uh, teach them to fish type of model. Right? You know, I don't want them to just always have to come and ask me to produce reports or run analyses for them, but I want to enable them to do it themselves. Sure. Well, let's, uh, let's, I want to go back to something you said earlier about your safe technology playground. And you mentioned the term that programs either graduate or die. And to me, that goes directly to the question of software adoption. So, so, so to me, it means either they. Well, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you. What exactly does that mean? Graduate or die? So, so, so generally, if you think about it in the in this technology adoption model, it's going to be um, somebody in some line of business in some job role says, okay, I've got a problem that isn't being solved by traditional IT and I'd like some application to help me with that problem. And if they are willing to invest kind of the time, you know, themselves to actually do the development, to actually sort of think about how can I actually you know, create an application to solve that, and they put it out on tap. Now, the question becomes, what does it mean for it to be successful? So, you know, if your two best friends say, okay, I'm going to come and use this application, that doesn't really kind of, you know, hit the bar. But we try to look for sort of meaningful populations. And certainly, you know, kind of in, in the IBM case, um, you know, if it's one of these, something that's been started by an individual, we're going to look for thousands of people, tens of thousands of people to adopt it before we would say it would graduate, right? Um, you know, because it really has to be something that's meaningful to a large enough population. But then as we graduate, what we, what, we, what we mean when we graduate it is that it becomes an officially supported application in our portfolio and it would be moved into a production data center and would be maintained and managed by my organization. Um, you know, if, if it's something that, you know, has an initial kind of spike and, you know, sort of, you know, the sort of hype curve, right, you know, that, you know, people are very excited, but then we find it's really not being accessed and used, you know, then we'll go back to the originator and say, look, you know, we really think this is past its, you know, useful life and it's, and it's sure. time to move on to something else. I had I had read that you your team reached a milestone a few years ago I think in 2012 where 51% of your investments focused on front office application development versus historically you know majority of spend was for back office applications is this a sign that you know successful IT organizations are reducing the gap between corporate IT and customers and really focusing on delivering insight and meaningful data and new applications to enable, again, customer-facing and front office part of, part of IBM. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I do, and I think it's sort of, so this sort of also comes back to your question about, you know, the sort of digitalization of the business, right? You know, I mean, right. so clearly there's been a huge increase in spending in what we do to support marketing and certainly the digital marketing. 
but even in terms of supporting, um, you know, our our sales teams and our our, our consulting professionals, our services professionals who are out with clients every day, um, kind of the tools that they use to help them while they're in front of clients is where I think a lot of the um, investment has been. Um, you know, if, even if it's things like running what you might think of as being, you know, kind of an internal process such as, I don't know, for example, managing pricing approvals or something like that, you know, to the extent that we can automate those processes and make them easier for our salespeople, it gives them more time in front of the clients. And I think that that's the important thing. But where I think we're going to be moving now is, is much, much more into the truly self-service world for clients. Um, certainly, as you see more of our offerings going to market as a service, right. um, you're going to see you know, much less of a you know, get to a point and a salesperson will call you because now it's going to be a big you know, kind of corporate decision and a big proof of concept and a big PO, you know, we're moving now into where it's, you know, kind of try, try and buy, you know, and there's going to be sort of much more, I think, sort of truly self-service. And I think that that also is going to put much more of the emphasis of the spend into that part of the business. Absolutely. Are you seeing a trend towards uh, breaking up very large, you know, we're, we're used to these very long multi-year IT projects. Are you seeing a trend towards breaking these up and chunking them so that there are shorter projects that are producing results faster? Yeah, we've definitely been seeing that. I mean, I think this started a few years ago as we talked about sort of moving towards agile development. Um, but I think in the early days of agile development, it was it was truly in the development cycle, but we might still have a you know nine or 12 month long project. It might have multiple iterations, but it still would wait until the end in order to deliver something. Um, but now what we're seeing is a, a notion around take smaller pieces of functionality, deliver incremental value to the business. Um, and, and I think sort of that is a way that we have to work because we have to keep up with the pace of change in the business, which is something that really has accelerated, I think, over the last couple of years. Um, and, I, and, you know, if we imagine a multi-year project, by the time we get done, the business has moved on. Um, you know, so we really need to be thinking in much smaller increments and being able to be more flexible and being able to respond to changes and requirements. What about, we're, we're just about done, but we haven't spoken very much directly about uh, cloud. Do you want to just say a few, few words, few thoughts about cloud before we finish up? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, you know, we're looking now at anything new that we do is definitely cloud first. And um, one of the things that I have my team currently doing is doing a, a pretty complete survey of all of the software as a service properties that could support a company the scale of IBM. And um, obviously, IBM has a, a number of uh, such software as a service properties ourselves uh, that we offer to the market. And clearly, we're looking at deploying all of those um, inside of IBM. And I definitely see this trend, certainly for a lot of what you might consider a lot of the traditional back office functions or certainly employee productivity um, of software as a service being a preferred model for the future. Um, now, when it comes to if we're really going to do brand new development, um, you know, the next thing obviously is platform as a service. Um, you know, IBM's just launched Bluemix, um, you know, which provides all of the middleware um, products as, as a service. And we're working with our GBS team um, to be able to train them and make sure that any new application development we do is done using that platform as a service model. 
And then obviously there's infrastructure as a service as well. And again, anything new that we do, we will design uh, for infrastructure as a service. And then we're looking at our existing application portfolio to determine you know, what really should be moved out of an internal data center into more of an infrastructure as a service model, or even more infrastructure as a service but within our own environment, right, in order to get the flexibility and the agility from it. Um, we probably like a, probably, I'm probably just like every other CIO, you know, we have a lot of uh, legacy applications, uh, many of which were developed for scale up versus scale out, which is really the kind of cloud-based model is much more of a, a scale out model. And so I think it'll take us uh, some amount of time uh, to see the uh, infrastructure as a service really kind of take hold um, in, in our legacy portfolio, but certainly everything new is going cloud. Okay. Well, I think we're just about at that time. So I know you earned a, an MBA from Boston University, and, and you must be a Red Sox fan. So can we leverage Watson to help us figure out how do we can get out of this seven-game losing streak? Is there any... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... I, think, I think Watson might have a few good answers for that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I wish we could talk more because, I mean, I'm dying to know about, for example, bring your own device for a 400,000 employee company, and but this has been the fastest 45 minutes we've had on CXO Talk, so well, I know why, don't you, why don't you come back another time and join us oh, for another show? Absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We learned, I learned incredible amount, and I really appreciate your uh, shared wisdom. Thank you very much. So, so we have to thank Jeanette Horan, who is the CIO of IBM, for coming on CXO Talk live, and this is not scripted. So if anybody <laughs> thinks that we're following a script here, think again. So Jeanette, you're very kind for doing this, and we're very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm Michael Krigsman. You have been watching episode number 61 of CXO Talk with Vala, Vala Afshar. Vala. Great show, thanks. And I hope that you will come back in another next next time, everybody who's been watching. We're going on the road, by the way. Just oh yes, we're yeah. going on the road. Tell them about that, Bala. No, uh, uh, CIO Magazine. We're working with uh, editor in chief of CIO Magazine, Mary Fran Johnson. On June 11th, we'll June be 11th, in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, where we're going to have our CXO Talk live, and we have two extraordinary. CIOs uh, who will join us on CXO Talk, Dr. Lisa Johnson, Deputy CIO of Executive Office of the President, the White House, and David Bray, the CIO of FCC. Uh, so it should be a pretty extraordinary CXO Talk live on the road. So that will be on June 11th, and I hope you'll join us for that. Thank you very much, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>